up behind me. <laughs> Way to queue you up right there. Um, we're going to start off our session tonight with Cahoots. And so if you don't have the app already, download it. You can quickly go to the App Store or your um, Google Apps, and you can download Cahoots. I think it says Cahoots app. And then follow the instructions behind me um, to get on. Um, so you can actually do that while I'm talking. I just, I just have a few instructions. Um, we're going to do our break as usual, five minutes, everything included, snack, bathroom, drink, whatever. You can bring your snacks back in the sanctuary and, and, uh, and snack on them while Desi's teaching. He doesn't mind. Uh, make sure you take your trash out with you. Um, the snack bags are not recyclable, so make sure those go in the trash can. Um, also, Cindy, <laughs> hello there. She felt like she was in grade. She felt like she was in grade school. That's all right. We love you. <laughs> That's all right. I know you didn't. Um, one other thing. I noticed some of you are shy about perhaps asking questions. Maybe you are. Um, therefore, there were, there are some index cards that'll be handed out uh, during the teaching tonight. If you have questions that come to mind as Desi's teaching, jot those questions down. At the end of his teaching, we, we, we have reserved some time for questions. We'll collect those cards, and Desi will try to address those questions as many as he can, given the time that we have. So, um, you know, things come to mind, and you might forget them by the end. Make sure you jot them down um, during the teaching, and Desi will be, do his best to address those questions at the end. All right. I think we're all good to go. We're ready to queue up cahoots. Right, let's roll. Okay, I'm going to give everybody, our numbers are going down. We started with 10, now we have 9. So, <laughs> anybody else who wants to dial in, you can do the app, or I believe you can go to kahoot.it if you've got internet access. I'll give it just a moment longer. Once you either go to the website or you pull up the app, again, you want to enter that code 636-900. We'll get started in just a second. And for those of you who played the game last time and you thought, man, English is not my thing, don't worry, tonight has absolutely nothing to do with English. Completely different topic. So it's going to look totally different. I'm going to give you just a moment longer. 636-900. So you can enter that game pin if you want to play along. You don't have to play along. You can just watch what's happening on the screen. Six three six nine hundred. So go to kahoot.it on the web and you enter that code. Or if you've got the app downloaded, you enter the code and then you put whatever name you want to add there. All right. Anybody still trying to dial in before I tell Matt to start? Are we good? Everybody who wants to play along, you've dialed in. All right, Matt. I think we're ready. Uh, Nick, go ahead and hit the start button. Eleven questions tonight. Cultural faux pas. In what country is the head sacred and should never be touched? The Netherlands, Iran, Japan, or Thailand? 
In what country is the head sacred and should never be touched? The Netherlands, Iran, Japan, or Thailand? Thailand. Next question. In what country is eating or drinking on the train considered very rude? Is that India, Spain, Japan, or China? In what country is eating or drinking on the train considered very rude? India, Spain, Japan, or China? Japan. Next question. In what country is it illegal for couples to display physical affection in public? Saudi Arabia, Canada, Kenya, or Angola? In what country is it illegal for couples to display physical affection in public? Saudi Arabia, Canada, Kenya, or Angola? Saudi Arabia. In what country is blowing your nose in public extremely rude, especially when sitting down for a meal? Is that Yemen, Morocco, China, or Switzerland? In what country is blowing your nose in public extremely rude, especially when sitting down for a meal? China. In what country should the bread be placed directly on the table and not on a plate? Serbia, France, Denmark, or Kuwait? In what country should the bread be placed directly on the table and not on a separate plate? Serbia, France, Denmark, or Kuwait? France. In what country should cappuccino never be ordered after 10.30 a.m.? Italy, Ireland, Latvia, or Bahrain? In what country should cappuccino never be ordered after 10.30 a.m.? Italy, Ireland, Latvia, or Bahrain? Italy. It's a morning drink. In what country are high heels not tolerated at many of their ancient sites? Qatar, Cyprus, Greece, or Tonga? In what country are high heels not tolerated at many of their ancient sites? Qatar, Cyprus, Greece, or Tonga? It's Greece. In what country is chewing gum illegal? Slovakia, Singapore, Laos, or Norway? In what country is chewing gum illegal? Slovakia, Singapore, Laos, or Norway? It's Singapore. In what country is haggling or bargaining not acceptable? 
in stores. Barbados, Botswana, Oman, United States. In what country is haggling bargaining not acceptable in stores? Barbados, Botswana, United States. It's the United States. Yeah, very good. In what country is speaking or moving around loudly considered impolite? Croatia, Australia, Slovenia, or Great Britain? In what country is speaking or moving around loudly considered impolite? Croatia, Australia, Slovenia, or Great Britain? It's Great Britain. Last one. In what country is leaving the price tag on a gift considered tacky? The Philippines, the United States, Germany, or Egypt? In what country is leaving the price tag on a gift considered tacky? Philippines, United States, Germany, or Egypt? Yeah, we all knew that one. United States. And our winner... Jay, congratulations, Jay. And who's Kansam? Kansam, okay, and Beard Slayer. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for playing along, kind of waking you up as we go into our lesson tonight. Nick, if you can go ahead and switch back to our regular slides. Welcome tonight to lesson number four. There we go. Lesson number four. This is our last lesson tonight in this series on understanding your Bible. Thank you so much for being with us the last four weeks. We've covered a lot of different material. And tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of culture and context. So why open with a cahoots game? How many of you just learned something playing that little game? People do different things all around the world, don't they? And what's acceptable in one place is not necessarily acceptable in another place. Sometimes what we consider to be right or wrong varies from place to place. We don't all view things the same way. How many of you have ever traveled outside the United States? For those of you that have, you notice things are different when you travel other places. That's part of the fun of traveling, isn't it? Let's be fair. How many of you have traveled inside the United States, but it was somewhere, you know, like a completely different region? I don't mean you went to Maryland. I mean, you know, you traveled somewhere else in the United States. How many of you noticed when you go even other places within the United States, things are different? Yep. When we travel, we get exposed to all kinds of new ideas, and we don't all do things the same way. And it's not just about language. In the United States example, we all speak English. And yet, when you travel to other parts of the United States, they do things differently. And sometimes, even if you translate something from one language into another, stuff gets lost in translation. Last year, we went to France during the month of November and visited our friends who are missionaries there. And on the flight home, after spending two weeks there, we're coming back to the United States. I sat next to Kendall on the flight, and we were kind of bored, and they had, you know, the in-flight movies you could pick. And so Kendall and I decided to watch a Chinese big-budget fantasy film. 
And we thought it was interesting because it had the subtitles in English. So we have no clue what this film is about. We have no frame of reference for it whatsoever. But it has English subtitles down at the bottom. So Kendall and I watched this two-hour-long, huge fantasy epic that was filmed in China. And we're reading along on the subtitles. And even though it was translated into English, we were still lost. We had like no idea what was going on and we're watching this and we get the basic gist of the storyline. It was an epic adventure with multiple characters and they ended up in this magical fantasy land. Okay, broad brush, we kind of get it. But they would say something and then all the other characters would laugh and Ken and I are looking at each other thinking, that wasn't funny, okay? Because it, it didn't translate or they would do some action and then all of a sudden you could see everybody was very concerned we're thinking, what, what is going on here? Or we'd get to another part of the movie, and then suddenly it, no joke, turned into a musical right in the middle of the movie. And we had no idea that was coming, and it only did that for about 10 minutes, and then they went back to regular dialogue. We were totally lost. This movie had been translated from Mandarin into English, and even though we had a translation available to us, we could not really follow along with the story. Why was that? We didn't have the cultural context. We didn't understand what was going on in front of us. I asked this question a few weeks ago. How many of you like history, right? How many of you who like history have noticed that throughout history, humanity has changed quite a bit? And we do things very, very differently, okay? So not only do we know that in other parts of the world they do things differently than us, we also recognize that in other times in history they did things differently than us. So why don't we merge these two? What if we're talking about a culture that's on the other side of the world and what we're studying happened two, maybe 3,000 years ago? You think there's maybe some cultural divide going on there? There's a huge, huge gap between us and what we read in the Bible. At best, when we read the Gospels, you realize we're still separated by 2,000 years. When we read stories in the Old Testament, some of the stories we're reading were separated by 3,000 years. So there's a huge, huge span of time and a huge, huge geographical distance and a massive cultural distance between where we are presently and what we're reading in the Bible. So, culture is a big deal. And when I say a big deal, I mean, like, really huge, gargantuan-level big deal. Culture is the customs, the arts, the institutions, the achievements of a group of people. Everyone has a culture. But we're not always aware of our culture because we live in it. If you could communicate with fish and you ask them to describe water, what do you think they'd say? I mean, you, you live in it, you swim in it, it's there all the time, it just is. Culture is kind of one of those things. We live in a culture. We have a context. And until you travel and you're exposed to other cultures, you probably don't put much thought into it because it's just the way that things are. But culture matters, and we need to spend time studying culture, biblical culture, if we plan to be serious students of the Bible. Because culture influences the way that we think and the way that we view the world around us. So our native country, our native language, our family makeup, our education, 
our economic status, all of these things impact us and the way that we read Scripture, whether we realize it or not. And so if we're not conscious of this, when we're reading the Bible and we're looking at these items in the Bible, it's very easy for us to read our culture backwards into what we're reading and assume they did things the same way we do and assume they thought the same way we do. And we'll get into this later tonight. Assume they think the same things are bad that we think are bad or the same things are good that we think are good. And that's not always the case. So as we're working through this tonight, I will tell you up front that the majority of this lesson comes out of this book right here. If you want to add another book to your reading list, this is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. This is an excellent book. It's a fairly easy read. The two guys who wrote this, one of them is a biblical scholar, the other one is a former missionary to Indonesia, and they're just simply walking through this book and talking about different things that often as Americans, as Westerners, we kind of take for granted when we read Scripture, but it's not necessarily that way when you actually dig into the Scripture and how the other parts of the world, especially when we get to the Middle East and the Far East, look at some very simple concepts to us, simple, right, normal things that we expect everybody to do. It's not necessarily that way. So I highly recommend this book. You can probably find it at the library. I know you can get it on Amazon. It's pretty inexpensive as a Kindle book, but definitely worth taking a look at. In this book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, throughout the book, they use this analogy of an iceberg. How many of you have at least seen a picture of an iceberg? Or maybe you've been somewhere far enough north and in the ocean, you may have actually seen an iceberg. The interesting thing about icebergs is that you really only see the tip of them. They are massive, massive pieces of ice, and the majority of an iceberg is below the surface. Now, in this picture, you'll see that we've got two lines kind of separating these iceberg into three pieces. So they use this analogy throughout the book, and they talk about the iceberg and the stuff that's above the surface. So these are the things that you'd probably recognize immediately. Oh, okay, that's different than the way that I do it. Then they talk about things that are below the surface. And these are items that you have to take extra work to be aware of. You could notice them, but you really got to be paying attention. But then that third section, way down there at the bottom of the screen, that's deep below the surface. These are the cultural things that you are not going to be aware of unless it's where you're from or you've lived somewhere for a long, long time. They put it in their book as the most powerful cultural values are those that go without being said. Have you ever been somewhere and been surprised when somebody violated some rule and you're thinking, why did they do that? And then you talk about it later like, well, everybody knows, fill in the blank, right? Anybody ever have an experience like that? Here's the thing. Everybody doesn't know. That's not true. All these unwritten rules. Everybody, every society has these unwritten rules. But if you grow up there, you know these things. You, you grow up with them. But if you're not from there, you're going to be oblivious to these rules. Okay. Just recently, earlier this week, we had the opportunity to have dinner with some friends who are from China and they cooked us a very traditional Chinese meal. So we're learning and enjoying the meal with them and we're using chopsticks. We're attempting to use chopsticks. Okay. So we're eating the rice. And at first 
the big chunks of rice because it was fresh and it had just been cooked and all that, that could do okay. Well, we get towards the bottom of the plate and, you know, now we've got individual rice grains and it's a terrible mess and I can't pick up any of this. And my bites are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm eating less and less food. And our host laughed at me at one point and she said, it's okay, Desi. She said, in China, it is not considered impolite to pick up your plate and hold it close to your mouth. And she demonstrated, and they pick up their plate, and they're kind of raking the last bit of the food, you know, off the, because I'm trying, you know, to very carefully pick, and it's not working. And she said, I know in America it would be considered rude to pick up your plate and hold it right here. She said, but it's not that in China. See, these are cultural differences. That's a minor little thing, but everybody knows. No, everybody does not know. Not if you didn't grow up there. So let me give you just a couple caveats, another, a couple qualifiers. When I talk about this topic tonight, please understand, if I use the word Eastern or I use the word Western, I'm talking in really, really big, huge, broad categories. There is no one monolithic Eastern culture or one unified, cohesive Western culture. I'm going to use generalizations. I have to just to get through this material. And so I read a quote that I thought was great. It said, generalizations, they are always wrong and usually very helpful. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to use generalizations. But please understand, they are always wrong and very helpful because they just kind of give our minds something to wrap around, something to work with. And understand, you'll see it as you look at the notes and as we talk tonight, Unlike some of the other nights where I've given you a lot of really specific details and maybe even given you some study techniques and some very specific items, that is not the goal tonight. Tonight is a high-level discussion, and my goal by the end of tonight is just to get you to think about a few things differently. And if you leave here tonight and you have more questions than when we started, that's okay because you're thinking. The goal tonight is just to get you to look at some items differently and maybe begin to ask yourself some questions. So let's start with some items that I would consider to be above the surface in that top level of that iceberg picture. Like the small portion of the iceberg that's visible from a distance, these two things are above the surface. They're probably things that we notice more immediately. And I'm going to go explode right out the gate. One of the things that we deal with present day that was also a very real issue in the Bible is race issues, ethnicity issues. It's no secret that in the United States we have a major sin problem, and that's really what it comes down to. It's a sin problem that has deeply divided our country over the issue of race. In 2019 today, racial tensions and racial issues are just as real as they were in 1919 or 1819 or 1719. It's a human problem. It's a sin problem. It is not unique to us. But I'll tell you, the way we live right now, all of you adults know, this has become especially volatile, especially in the news. And this word has been weaponized. And so people hurl labels at each other without really talking to each other, without even trying to understand what the other person is saying. It's just used to keep people divided. And I'm speaking a little side note now. Personally, I hate this word. I really, 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 really hate this word. It's painful. It's inaccurate. 
It's often misunderstood and people use it to divide. Furthermore, if you do some research, and I would encourage you on your own time to do this, go look at the history of the word race and the idea of racism. You'll see that this is a word that became popular in the post-enlightenment period. And that should tell you something if you're a student of history. And the idea of race came into vogue with this idea that there were different races of people that we could group together by their traits. And the subtext of this from the very beginning was that some races are superior to other races. Hence, we need to categorize people so we can decide who's more dominant. It's not real. It's not biblical. And I hate it. There's one race. It is the human race. We are all made in the image of God, and we all have equal value. So you will hear me tonight. I'm going to switch words. I started with race because I recognize that's the most commonly used word. But I hate that word, and in my own personal vocabulary, I don't use it because it's used simply to divide people. There's one race. It's the human race. The much better word is ethnicity. I am not trying to erase our distinctions because there are many different ethnic groups. We are all part of the human race, but we come from different ethnic backgrounds and our cultural differences are very real. So I'm not trying to minimize that either. But in my opinion, and granted, I'm telling you up front, it's my opinion. If you want to be biblical and if you want to be more Christian, I strongly believe that we need to talk about our different cultural differences. We should talk about our ethnic differences, but they're not racial differences. There's one race, human race, and we're all made in the image of God. Amen? All right, I'll get off my political soapbox now, and I'll come back to the lesson. And we're going to talk about ethnic divisions and ethnic differences, because you find that all over the Bible, too. The difference is that today, oftentimes, especially in the news, we talk about skin color, and we make that the major dividing issue between different groups of people. But you rarely, I can only think of a couple examples in Scripture where it clearly describes a person's skin color and uses that as the marker that distinguishes them. But yet there's ethnic issues, ethnic divides, ethnic tension all over the Scripture. It's just worded differently, and so we don't often recognize it. One of the key distinguishers when reading the biblical text that gives us a clue to some ethnic issue or a prejudice, because there's prejudice all over the Bible too. Again, it's a sin condition, and it's not new. One of the key distinguishers is when the text calls attention to where someone's from. Today, we tend to divide people over the color of their skin. In the Bible, they divided people over where they came from. And when you start looking for that, these geographic marchers, when you're reading a story, especially in the Old Testament, and it constantly calls attention to where someone's from, that's an indicator in the text that they're making a big deal out of the fact that this person or this group of people, they're not us. They're other than us. In the Old Testament, who's the default ethnic group? Who does Scripture focus on? Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, any of those words will work. So by default, most of the characters are Jewish. But if you come across a character and it constantly refers to where they're from, so-and-so the fill-in-the-blank group or so-and-so from fill-in-the-blank, it's drawing attention to the fact that they're not Jewish. 
It's drawing attention to the fact that they're different. They're not one of us. Let's look at a few examples of this. Here we are in Genesis chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. At the age of 40, Esau married two Hittite wives. Notice it doesn't just say wives. He married two Hittite wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, and Basemoth, the daughter of Elon. But Esau's wives made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. We're going to skip over most of chapter 27 and jump to the end of chapter 27. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am sick and tired of these local Hittite women. I would rather die than see Jacob marry one of them. Does it sound like maybe we got some prejudice thing going on? Yeah, it's very real. Not new. All throughout the Bible. It doesn't make it okay, by the way. Keep in mind the Bible's recording this tension. I just wanted you to see it's not new. This isn't a 21st century problem. It's a human problem, a sin problem. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and said, you must not marry any of these Canaanite women. Again, Canaanite women. Instead, go at once to Padad Aram, to the house of your grandfather, Bethuel, and marry one of your uncle Laban's daughters. What's he doing? He's saying, go marry our people. Get out of this area. Go back to where I come from and find a wife from our clan. May God Almighty bless you and give you many children, and may your descendants multiply and become like many nations. May God pass on to you and your descendants the blessings he promised to Abraham. May you own this land where you are now living as a foreigner. For God gave this land to Abraham. So dad gives Jacob this blessing and says, go marry someone from somewhere else. Keep in mind his twin brother Esau has married two Hittite women, and his parents can't stand them. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padad Aram to stay with his uncle Laban, his mother's brother, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean. Do you see how we keep making references to familial ties and geographic ties? The text is making it very plain. Jacob was to go marry one of us. He's got to go back to where we're from to marry someone from within our clan. Esau knew that his father Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Paddan Aram to find a wife and that he had warned Jacob, you must not marry a Canaanite woman. He also knew that Jacob had obeyed his parents and gone to Paddan Aram. It was now, <laughs> as if he needed more help, it was now very clear to Esau that his father did not like the local Canaanite women. So Esau visited his uncle Ishmael's family, and he married one of Ishmael's daughter in addition to the wives he already had. His new wife's name was Mahalath, and she was the sister of Naboth and the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. So again, we got a family divide over here because so-and-so married the wrong ethnic group of people. Anybody ever have relations like that in extended family? Ever see that before? Not new. Not new at all. Let's jump to a different example. How about Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? While they were there at Hezroth, Miriam and Aram criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. So now this is post-Exodus, and Moses' brother and sister are mad at him because he married a Cushite woman. See that distinction? Not that he had just married somebody, but specifically she was Cushite. 
And they were upset over that. And they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? But the Lord heard them. God's not happy with them and the way they're treating their brother and his wife. Now, here's what's interesting, and here's a good example of how we can read backwards into the text incorrectly. If you go do a study, you will find that Cush is North Africa. So when it says that Moses' wife was a Cushite woman, she's from North Africa. And there have been plenty of, and they break it down in the book if you want to read it later. There have been plenty of commentators, especially white male European commentators, who up until the last few years wrote about the fact that Abraham's brother and sister looked down on him because he married an African. That, ladies and gentlemen, is 21st century Western mindset, reading backwards into a text, this idea that somehow Africans were less. Go back and read the text. Who were these people, these being the Hebrews, who were they just two chapters ago? Slaves. Who are the Cushites at this point in history? A very wealthy, well-respected nation of warriors and soldiers. The Hebrews are the slaves. The Cushites are the wealthy nation. Most likely, Moses married above his class system, not below it. But it's easy. You can pick up lots of commentaries that talk about him marrying an African woman as if that was somehow lesser. It's backwards. We're reading our 21st century history into it. At this time in history, the Hebrews are slaves. So these ethnic tensions are very real, and we find them throughout the Scripture. What about Acts chapter 6? I'm not going to take the time to read all of Acts chapter 6. If you know this story in the New Testament, we see that the apostles are frustrated because now the church is beginning to grow and they've got to care for these different widows and they've got a food distribution problem and people are coming to them. Now we're just within Jewish culture and they're saying, you know what? It's not fair. We see that the Hebrew speaking widows are getting better treatment than the Hellenist, which means the Greek speaking Hebrew widows. What's the difference? The Hebrew Hebrew-speaking widows would be those who had been raised and lived around Jerusalem. The Hellenist would be the Jews who had been raised somewhere else in the Roman Empire, but now lived in Jerusalem. So even within one ethnic group, we've got a division based on where you grew up. Does this sound familiar? Anybody ever seen those kind of tensions? Again, so when you look through Scripture, these ethnic divides are pretty common. They just don't call them out the way we do. As you read scripture, if it continually makes reference to where someone is from, that's a good indication that we're dealing with some sort of tension like that. By the way, accents mattered, even in the Bible. Anybody ever been poked at or teased at because of your accent? Yeah? Let me give you a couple more examples. These aren't the only ones. But check this out. This one's pretty extreme. Judges chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Jephthah captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And whenever a fugitive from Ephraim tried to back, go back across, the men of Gilead would challenge him. Are you a member of the tribe of Ephraim? They would ask. If the man said, no, I'm not, they would tell him, say, Shibboleth. If he was from Ephraim, he would say, Sibboleth. Because the people from Ephraim cannot pronounce the word correctly. Then they would take him and kill him at the shallow crossings of the Jordan. And all 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. So this is during a time of war. And these tribes are divided and they're fighting against each other. Not good. 
Again, recorded, not endorsed. Not good at all. But one of the ways they could tell each other apart, because ethnically, we're pretty much talking about the same group, it was by their accent. And if you had the wrong accent and you ended up on the wrong side of the river, guess what? You're going to die. How about this example in the New Testament? Now we're reading about Peter during the trial of Jesus. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and they said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. He's from the north. And that was the more rural part. In other words, Peter had a drawl. He was the country boy in the crowd. And his accent gave him away. So these divides, they're all over the place in Scripture. We just have to read it a little bit differently and pay attention to what it's saying. If you're reading a passage and it keeps drawing reference to where someone is from, it's a good indication that there's some ethnic tension or ethnic prejudice going on. Otherwise, why would it keep pointing out, you know, that guy from that other place? Next point, how about words and language? Language is probably the most obvious difference between us and the ancient Bible cultures. We know the Bible was not written in English. Language is the group of words. That was deep, wasn't it? Language is a group of words. I wanted to repeat that in case you missed it. But language is a whole lot more than just a group of words, isn't it? Language represents much of our culture and how we think. I don't have time to get into this. There are plenty of sociological studies that actually demonstrate literally the way you process information is shaped by your mother tongue, the language that you first learned. And why is that? Because language describes what is important to us. I'll give you a real-world example. This is taken from the book. Again, one of the authors of the book was a missionary to Indonesia, and so he pointed this example out. In America, we grow rice, and then we harvest rice, and we buy bags of rice, and then we cook and we eat rice. But in Indonesia, there are fields of paddy. There are bags of beras. And there are plates of nasi. Why? It's the main staple of their diet. They have a lot more words to describe it. It's important to them. Now let's flip this around. Indonesia is a predominantly Muslim country. So you know what that dirty animal is that they don't care about? It's a pig. And they have one word in their language for it. But here in America, we raise pigs. And then we slaughter pork. But then when it gets to our plate, we eat pork chops or loins, or ribs, or roast, or sausage, or most importantly, bacon. Clearly, this word is important to us. We have a lot of distinctions. You know what the Indonesians have? Pig, and you don't eat them. What do we have? Rice. I mean, rice is rice is rice, right? To us? What if you lived in another part of the world where 80% of your diet was rice? Well, you'd pay more attention to it. Our words define what is important to us. And it's the same thing with the biblical languages. I'll give you a couple examples. Greek has four words for love. Agape, philia, eros, and storge. English, we have one word. I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating. I love my wife, Rachel. I love my church family. 
and I love pizza. And they don't all mean the same thing, do they? And yet in English, we have one word, love. The Bible uses four different... Now watch this. This amazes me. I may do a Bible study on this some other time. The Bible uses four different words to describe death and what comes next. How many of you think the subject of death and what happens to us after death is, you know, kind of important, something we'd pay attention to, right? Well, here's the thing. In Hebrew and Greek, we have Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. The King James takes four different distinct words that all have different meanings and flattens them into one English word, hell. And there have been all kinds of of misunderstandings in reading, especially some of the comments in the New Testament about hell, or I'll give you a hint, the gates of hell. Because we've taken four different words with four different meanings and flattened them into one English word. Words define what is important to us. And we don't think about it because it's our native language. So we have lots of words to describe things that are important to us, and then we have maybe one or two words to describe things that are not as important to us, but it varies from culture to culture. It's not a right, wrong thing. It's just an is thing. And so often we have to use multiple words to describe a biblical word or a concept. Let me give you an example. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. 
Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Cool, isn't it? Hey, thanks for watching this word study video by The Bible Project. We make lots of other videos and they're all about showing how the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. You can go to our website, thebibleproject.com, see what we're working on, and even jump in to pitch in a few bucks to the next one. Thanks for being a part of this with us. Thanks, you guys. I'm going to give you a few more words about that at the end of tonight. Just a little plug right there. It is free. It is online. They've done a ton of these short little Bible intro videos for different books of the Bible and major key concepts in the Bible. It's really, really well done and very biblically sound. If you'd like to understand some more common biblical words, and if you're a visual person like I am, I highly recommend visiting them. It's called The Bible Project. But that's a good example, once again, of how words define what is important. And we have the English word peace. And to us, it's the idea of the absence of strife. But the biblical idea of peace includes that, but it's so much more. How many of you know that a common greeting even to this day in the land of Israel is shalom, right? Now you understand a little more of what that means. It's a blessing. It's a wish. It's not just the idea that you have peace, but that your life is whole and it's ordered and it's together and it's functioning correctly. How many would like that shalom? Oh, absolutely. And that's what the Bible calls us to work towards. All right, we're coming up to the midway point, so if we can go ahead and throw up our five-minute break, you are welcome to move about freely within the cabin. You can get your little snack. Please be back in your seats and fasten your seatbelt by the time our five-minute timer is up. All right, if you can make your way back to your seats and fasten your seatbelts within the cabin... Hopefully we're not going to experience turbulence, but. So we talked just briefly. Again, the idea is to expose you to some ideas about some things above the surface. I was asked to just make a public service announcement on behalf of Sister Bernice, who has extra T-shirts from her workplace. So if you'd like a T-shirt, come see her after church. Not right now. I think you're more interested in the T-shirts than listening to me, and I'd take that personally. So stay where you're seated. But when I'm done talking... Then you can give her your attention and you can get up and look at these extra shirts. So two, 
two quick concepts. We talked about the idea of language and we talked about the idea of ethnic divisions. Those are kind of above the surface. They're a little easier to see. Now we're going to look in this mid-level at stuff that's below the surface. This section looks at items that we often associate with a specific value. And so because we associate it with a certain value set, we assume that we're doing it the quote-unquote the right way. How many of you have ever worked with someone else and they told you, no, 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 you need to do it the right way? How many of you in dealing with this person found out very quickly the right way meant their way? We do it too. We're all guilty of this, okay? But culturally, we have concepts about the right way to do something. And this is where real misunderstanding and a misreading of Scripture can occur. So let's talk about a few concepts. And again, I'm just hitting them at the high level. The first one I'd like to talk about is the idea of an individual versus a collective culture. Individualism versus collectivism. In the West, so I'm talking predominantly Europe, North America, Australia. In the West, we are accustomed to thinking about our needs, our wants, our desires, our goals. We are very individualistic. But this was not the mindset of the people that lived in the Bible. Like Eastern culture, even to this day, they were collective cultures, which means that it was not about what the individual wanted. It was about the group. Now, it's important to recognize this because without thinking about it, we often read the biblical stories and even the instructions in the New Testament as individual acts. Let me give you a few examples. How many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem when she is nine months pregnant about to give birth to Jesus? How many of you see this on Christmas cards? And how many of you have ever seen a picture of Joseph holding the reins of a donkey and his wife, soon-to-be wife Mary, is on the donkey and they're making their way across this starry night sky in this lonely desert, right? It's not real at all. It's a collectivist culture. First off, it'd be insane to travel that far by yourself. It's a good chance you're going to die or get mugged or something else. So it's just stupid. Secondly, they're group cultures, and they're going back to their ancestral home to be taxed. So why would Joseph take Mary from Galilee all the way to Bethlehem when she's due? How many of you have ever read that and thought, man, this seemed like a really bad idea, right? So could they just not count in ancient times? Nobody knew that at nine months women give birth? No, that's not it at all. Why would they travel then? Because everyone else was traveling. You understand it's not Joseph and Mary. They're just the focus of the story. It's all of Joseph's aunts and his uncles and his cousins and probably his brothers and maybe even his parents. Mary comes from the same family lineage as Joseph, the house of David. So that means all of her aunts and uncles and her cousins and all of her extended family are going. It's not two people making this trip together. It easily was a hundred, possibly more. Why would she come along? Because everybody she knew was going and she's due. She's not going to have a baby by herself. The birthing team was with them. All right? But we tend to read it without thinking about it as the two of them making their way from Galilee to Bethlehem. Last week, I gave you the example of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm not going to walk through that again in Acts chapter 8. How many of you have read that story? And if we confess, we often think of it as the two of them. So Philip's coming along and he meets some dude in the desert and gives him a Bible study, right? No, he's a court official. He's the treasurer of a very large, wealthy nation. He has an entire entourage of him. There's a whole group of people traveling down this road together. 
But we don't think group. We think us. So we tend to read scripture that way. Let me give you another verse. And it's rebooting. So can you pull up Philippians chapter 2, verse 12? Famous verse, I referenced this last week. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How many of you have had that quoted to you about the importance of getting right with Jesus? Work out your own salvation. Except every single second person reference in Philippians is plural. Work out y'all's salvation. It'd be a better translation. It wouldn't be grammatically correct, but it'd be easier for us to understand. Paul was saying to the Philippian church, now that I'm gone, you need to work together to be saved. But how many of you have been taught, or at least have read this, and we internalize it and personalize it? I need to be right with Jesus. Well, you do need to be right with Jesus, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's admonishing this church. You need to work together to be saved. How about this verse? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6.19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Mm, a lot of use in this verse. By now you should be suspicious of what I'm pulling up though. Guess what? Just like the previous verse, they're plural. Your body. Body singular. By the way, temple singular. If they're plural, what is this verse saying? Collectively, we are the body. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple, singular, of the Holy Spirit. But again, because we come from an individual nation, we tend to read this, and we see this verse as talking about my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, you're part of it, but again, that's not what Paul was saying. It's a collective culture, and he was writing to a group of people, not an individual. Me and Jesus, we got this thing going on. That's an American idea. It's a Western idea. We understand that each of us must make a decision to become a disciple of Christ. I am not taking away your personal responsibility. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But that's one step, and it comes at the beginning. But even having said that, go read the book later. He talks about being a missionary in Indonesia and in Asian countries. It's not a singular decision. Someone doesn't decide to follow Jesus. They discuss it with their family. And often, and by the way, we see this in Acts 2, often an entire family converts or no one does because they're collective cultures. They think in groups, not as individuals. Something to chew on. We worship together. We pray together. We serve together. We learn together. We are all part of one body and we're saved together. We hurt together, we heal together, we laugh together, we give together, we grieve together. Together, we are the family of God. Does this sound familiar? This is all scripture, okay? How many you, I, me singular statements did you hear in that? None. No one is saved in isolation. It's not what God intended for us. You must belong to the body of God. Me and Jesus got this thing going is not biblical. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not excusing you from that. 
But understand that we are saved together. And all of the commands that you see throughout the New Testament are collective commands. It's directed to the church body, all of us. And so especially as Westerners, we have to make a conscious effort when we read Scripture to recognize that these Scriptures are written to groups of people. And I am a part of the group, but it's not all about me. Sorry to disappoint you. So individualism versus collectivism, it's a big deal in Scripture, and it's something that we're blind to unless we make a very deliberate effort to look at it. Another thing is how many of you have very strong ideas of what's right and wrong? Mm, the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things. That's right, that's not right, okay? In Western culture, we tend to think of things as right or wrong, and we're guided by this kind of internal compass. We've all been taught the idea that when we do something wrong, our guilty conscience should convict us. That's because we're an individualistic culture, and so we tend to be introspective. We do a lot of looking inwards at ourselves. And please understand, this isn't wrong, it's just different. But in Eastern cultures, which are collective cultures, the emphasis is not on right or wrong. It's on these concepts of honor and shame. How many of you have heard that term before? Honor, shame, or an honor, shame culture. Some of you may be familiar with that. If I do something that brings shame to my family, that would be terrible. That would be, in the West, what we call wrong. It's about honor and shame. But if I do something that brings honor to my family, then my actions are acceptable. This is why to this day there are cultural divides where we look at something that happens in another part of the world, it gets reported on the news, and you think, how on earth could they do that? Why would they behave that way? How could you possibly justify that kind of behavior? Have you ever seen that in the news, especially something dealt with in Asia or the Middle East? And you're thinking, how could a whole group of people behave like that and find that acceptable? Because it's an honor-shame culture. And understand for them, and it is from birth forward, it's the way they've been raised to think. If it's acceptable to the group, if it's honorable, then it's okay. Collective cultures don't tend to think in right-wrong terms. They think in honor-shame terms. And this isn't a right-wrong issue. It's just a different issue. Again, right-wrong, that's Western thinking. Honor-shame. Now, sin is sin. I'm not excusing sin, but I'm talking about cultural preferences and the way that we do things. And guess what? The Bible is full of honor-shame cultures. And if we're not aware of this, we often miss the motivations, the reasons why certain people did and behaved certain ways when we read the biblical stories. David, how about the story of David and Bathsheba? Here's a great one. David was shamed by the prophet Nathan for his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And by the way, go back and read it. It keeps saying Uriah the Hittite. There's another ethnic thing going on, right? He's not Jewish. He's a mercenary. He's a respected soldier, but he's other and David wanted the other guy's wife. Now, we tend to read backwards in that and think that David was guilty and it conflicted him. Go back and read the scriptures. He's not conflicted. Why? Because he's king. Kings do what they want and take what they want. That was perfectly acceptable behavior then. It's an honor-shame culture. But God introduced an element into these honor-shame cultures. 
the prophet. And prophets don't whisper convictions. They shout in your face. And Nathan walks into the king and says, you are the man. And he publicly shames David. And at the point that Nathan publicly shames David, then David has to make a correction. Now David has to address the sin. It's not that all of a sudden David realized something was wrong. It's an honor-shame culture. And he's been shamed for his bad actions, his sinful actions. But the shame comes not at the affair he tried to hide. The shame comes at the prophet who publicly denounces him because it's an honor-shame culture. Let's look at another example out of the Old Testament of how honor-shame was used to appeal to God. So it's not just the way they interact with people. It's the way in the Old Testament people interacted and related to God. How about this example? How many of you remember in Exodus chapter 32, we had that whole golden calf incident? I don't have time to get into this one, but I love that story too because Moses comes down the mountain. He's furious. He breaks the tablet. He looks at his brother Aaron, his older brother, and he says, what just happened? And Aaron says, don't look at me. I collected all these earrings and I threw them in the fire and poof, out popped this golden calf. It's a ridiculous story, right? Now, Moses realizes we are in bad trouble and the people are about to die. And so he is appealing. He is begging God not to wipe them all out. But look at the conversation that he has with God in Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 through 14. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. And then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. Oh Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Don't miss this. Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? What did Moses just do? He, appeal, he appealed to honor shame. God, you can't destroy these people. What will the Egyptians say about you? Now, we kind of chuckle at that, but you understand this is a very logical, strong appeal for Moses because it's a collective culture. It's an honor-shame culture. It's about preserving God's honor. You can't destroy them. You'd be going back on your word. What would other people think of you? It's about honor-shame. Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham. See, now we're playing to him, right? If I can say this respectfully, Moses is trying to play to God's pride. Remember your servants Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. Now watch this verse. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. You go home and chew on that one for a while. Moses appealed to an honor-shame system. God, you can't do that. People are going to talk bad about you. The psalmist often talked about the glory and the honor of the Lord. Let's look at a few examples. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three: Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. 
honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. Psalm 50, verse 15. Then call on me when you are in trouble, and I will rescue you, and I will, and you will give me glory. 84.11, for the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. You can go read this later. Translations are split about 50-50. Some say grace and glory. Others say favor and honor. One more. Psalm 91.15, when they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and... Honor them. Honor shame is a big deal in the Bible. And it's something for the most part, unless we're looking for it, we're oblivious to it. Because we think right, wrong. And in collective cultures, they think honor shame. In the New Testament, honor shame culture is hugely at play with Jesus in the Gospels. Especially when he's interacting with the religious leaders. In the ancient world, they thought there, there was a limited supply of honor. There's only so much honor, and then it's divided up amongst people. And so everybody's clamoring to get more honor, because remember, there's only so much of it. When you wanted to learn something, you asked a private question. Think of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, or the disciples after Jesus would teach, and they'd pull him aside, and they'd ask him a question. When you want to learn, you ask a question in private. When you want to challenge someone, you ask a question publicly. Now you've set up a competition, and it's an honor-shame thing. And the audience is the judge. And the person who wins is the one who can silence the other person. And if you throw down a challenge like that in public, and you ask your questions, and you're beaten, and you don't have a comeback, guess what? You just lost honor, and there's a limited supply of it. Now think of Jesus in the temple grounds, the holiest, most sacred place in all of Jewish culture. And again, we're individuals. We tend to think of Jesus like with this small group of people around asking him questions. No, no, no. This is a 40-acre place. At religious festivals, which is when Jesus showed up, they could easily have a million people walking through the temple grounds on any given day. When Jesus is having these conversations with the Pharisees, there are thousands of people milling about during these interactions, and many, many, many people listening to them going back and forth. But watch what Matthew chapter 22 says at the end of this discourse when Jesus has gone back and forth and the Pharisees and Sadducees are answering, asking him all these questions. No one could answer him. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. What's the deal? He has thoroughly shamed them. He didn't just win. He stomped them in the ground. He embarrassed them so badly, nobody dared to open their mouth and ask anything else before they lose any more ground. And you have to understand, how many of you have ever been embarrassed in public? You get over it. It's not the same thing in an honor-shame culture. You lose honor in an honor-shame culture, you may never regain it. Honor shame is a huge, huge deal. It is such a big deal, it's worth dying over. How many of you have come across that, reading stories or watching movies, and you see in other cultures an honorable death? 
right? That idea, okay? You die over honor issues, all right? He has just publicly shamed the leadership. So what's the solution? They need to gain that honor back. How do you gain the honor back? Jesus needs to die. But you can't just assassinate him because if you assassinate him, then he dies a martyr and he keeps his honor and you've done something shameful. No, what you need to do is embarrass Jesus and you need him to die a shameful death. So what do you do? You set up a fake arrest and a mock joke of a trial and then you get him condemned as a criminal. And then you have him executed in the most shameful way possible, a crucifixion. Do you see how in the background, all of this is about honor and shame. And it's about them trying to regain it. Except he doesn't stay dead. (laughs) So honor, shame is a huge, huge deal. And here's your takeaway. Pay attention to where a story takes place. If it's in a public setting and there's some sort of conflict, then you've got an honor-shame thing going on in the story. If it takes place in private, probably not. It could still be. But especially if the Bible story takes place in public and there's a conflict, you're dealing with an honor-shame issue. All right, the last few minutes. Let's look deep below the surface. What's a virtue and what's a vice? A virtue is a quality considered morally good and desirable. A vice is something that we'd call immoral or wicked. How many of us recognize we want to live virtuous lives and we want to eliminate vices? We get that concept. And here's the challenge. Who decides what's a virtue and who's a vice? Now, as Christians, our default answer is to say, well, the Bible, the Bible decides what's virtuous, right? Well, yes, I would agree with you. But the thing is, Most of the time, without realizing it, our culture decides what's a virtue and what's a vice. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about virtues and vices. Let me give you an example. There are many values that we absorb from our culture through folk tales. Think like the story of the little red hen. Or how about the tortoise and the hare? You grew up with these stories? They teach virtues, cultural virtues. We get cultural proverbs. A penny saved is a penny earned. Early to bed and early to rise makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. A stitch in time saves nine. Cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who help themselves. These are virtues, cultural virtues. Ironically, that last one is actually really, really bad. Because read 90, Psalm 91.15 again. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. Biblically, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who call on him. But these are cultural virtues. And so we tend to read them backwards into scripture. Now I'm going to mess with your heads for a moment. Let's talk about some other cultural virtues. How many of you would like to have perfectly straight, pearly white teeth? Yeah. How many of you like the idea of being skinny versus obese? Right? How many of you like body odor? No. How many of you would like to have a full head of hair instead of being bald? Right? How many of you want to use proper grammar and diction? You don't want to be embarrassed in public by the way you speak. 
How about being punctual? Being on time. How about being clean and having well-kept clothes? These are virtues in our culture. They're not bad. They're not wrong. Just understand they're culturally bound. And let me demonstrate it to you. I want you to close your mind and I want you to picture Jesus, whatever Jesus looks like to you. Can you picture Jesus missing his front two teeth? Can you picture Jesus as obese? What about stinky? How about bald? Can you picture Jesus being late to everything? Can you picture Jesus with a twang and a country accent and using bad grammar? Can you picture Jesus as dirty and wearing clothes that have holes in them and are shabby? Does that make you uncomfortable? Do we like the idea of a bald, buck-tooth, obese Jesus? No, we don't. Why? Because that's not desirable in our culture. How does the Bible describe Jesus? His physical appearance? We don't know. It makes one comment about him being pretty average. But see, culturally, we expect a leader to be tall and they should have beautiful teeth and a full head of hair. Often Jesus is pictured as light-skinned with blue eyes, which does not at all match the Middle East, okay? We have these cultural expectations of what is virtue, and then you mess with that and it upsets us. Dental hygiene is a modern concept. Let me give you a reality check. Jesus probably was missing teeth. Personal hygiene and bathing every day. Modern concept. Jesus probably stank just like everybody else around him. Am I messing with you right now? It's because these are cultural virtues. And again, it doesn't make them wrong. My point is we just read them back into Scripture without realizing it. And we have to be very, very careful of it. I am out of time, and I have so much more that I could share. So I'm going to have to wrap this up to allow a little bit of time for questions. The point of my discussion tonight, you can see some other things in your note, is not to dissect these virtues, but I encourage you to go home and think about them a little more. How many cultural values that we impart into Scripture? How many times do we read something and we assume this is the right way or this is the way they looked or the way they act because it's what's right and acceptable to us? And again, it doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it culturally bound. And so we read these things backwards into Scripture without even realizing it. My goal tonight was just to get you to start to think about some of these things. Sometimes when we begin to take a cultural look and a close look, we realize that they're not biblical values. Sometimes they even contradict biblical teachings, like God helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. That's anti-scriptural. It's very American, but it's anti-scriptural. Another tendency we have is to prioritize our virtues and vices. Go read in the New Testament in the epistles, especially in the Pauline letters, where he makes a list and he starts talking about different good or bad things. Take Romans chapter 1, for example. Mentally, how many of you categorize these things? Like, that one's really bad. That one's kind of bad. No, nah, that's not as big a deal, right? Because we're Western, and so we categorize them. But guess what? Paul doesn't do that. He just lists them. How many of you assume that the first one is the worst or the best and then the order is either ascending or descending? That's a Western value. We tend to categorize information that way. They don't do that in the East. You can't assume just because it's first or last in the list, it's most important or least important. 
Because here's the reality. Sin is sin. It's all bad. God's not pleased with any of it. But mentally we go like, that one's really bad. That one I could probably live with. That's not the point. So we tend to categorize virtues and vices without even thinking about it. I cannot give you a list of biblically sound American virtues for a couple reasons. The biggest one, and this is important to recognize, is because I'm American and they're invisible to me. Ask a fish to describe water. Ask you to describe your own culture. We live in it. We breathe it. We're raised in it. We're not conscious of it. You have to make a very deliberate effort to think about these things. So we have to be careful not to read our cultural values backwards into Scripture. And here's a good test for us as we travel, as we interact with Christians from other places. When we encounter Christians from other cultures who don't value the same priorities that we do, it's a really good opportunity for self-assessment. How many of you have traveled or you've encountered missionaries or Christians from some other area and they did some practice and it kind of affronted you at first and you thought, why would they behave like that? That's, and mentally, you didn't say it, but you thought, that's wrong, right? There's likely a cultural value at play. Most likely, it's not a sin issue. So begin to ask yourself, are they really wrong? Are they sinning? Or do they just have a different concept of virtue and vice than I do? My hope tonight was that you pause and begin to look at some things differently. It was about engaging with some new ideas, not about walking away with a list of answers. We've been entrusted with an incredible gift, the Word of God, God's inspired Word. So we should take it seriously as we study it and not take it for granted. Be really careful in your own reading time to read slow and don't think, oh, I got this. I know this story. I don't know these stories. I read it afresh regularly, and I notice new things all the time. And so just make a conscious effort to be careful and aware of how you're reading it. And that's my main takeaway. As I wrap up, I do want time for questions. But as I wrap up, some of you have asked me about resources. So over the last few weeks, I've listed some different resources. I'm going to throw some of them back up on the board real quick. For you parents out there with kids, and even for you adults who just enjoy good stuff, what's in the Bible with Buck Denver? This is hands down, bar none, the best biblical overview I have ever seen. This is a Bible survey course done with puppets. Do I need to say more? 13 DVDs, 26 lessons. It literally walks from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. I own this. We have done it with our kids. If you're a parent and want to do it with your kids, do not put it in your DVD player and walk away. This is not a babysitting tool. It's a chance to have great family discussions. But I highly encourage this. If you want to learn more about the Gospels and how they're different and yet all relate together, Mark Strauss, Four Portraits, One Jesus. This is hands down the best book I have ever looked at that discusses this. It's full of pictures, pullouts, side notes, archaeological information, it's an excellent, great, it's not cheap, but it's an excellent resource. You may be able to find it at a library or used. You may just decide to pay for it if it's important to you, but I cannot recommend this book enough. Tonight, talking about these cultural things that we're oblivious to. This is an easy read, 
but it's a great one. Misreading scripture with Western eyes, removing the cultural blinders to better understand the Bible. So here's a great book for your list as well. Tonight I reference something called the Bible Project. You can Google it later. It's free. It's online. They put together quality short little videos anywhere from four to ten minutes long discussing different books of the Bible and their major themes, discussing major concepts and big vocabulary words in the Bible. Next one comes courtesy of Carol Mitchell. She brought this up to me a week ago, two weeks ago. I just didn't get to it last week. This is her Bible that she reads. It's the Daily Walk Bible. This one is the NIV, but what she pointed out to me when she opened it, I had been talking about major themes and key concepts, who wrote the book, when they wrote it, who the original audience was. This is built into this Bible. So if you're looking for a Bible that contains that and you like the NIV translation, I don't own this, but Sister Carol Mitchell showed me that she does, and this is what she does in her own personal devotion time. So thank you for sharing that with me. But here's an example. But again, it's an example. You can find other translations and other Bibles that do the same thing. Go to a bookstore. You can look through the Bibles. You can find Bibles out there that will outline the major themes in a particular book. Who wrote the book? When they wrote it? Who the audience was? So those investigate the scripture. Remember being a reporter, the who, what, when, where, why questions. You can find that information. Let me give you a personal one that I use. This is New Living Translation. It's called the Filament Bible. This is a physical hardback Bible. You've seen me preach from it and bring it here many times. It's a gray hardback Bible, the one I have. But built into it is an app that you install on your phone. And as you read along, you can pull up maps, interactive videos, all kinds of study notes and resources. So if you like the New Living Translation and you want to dig in and find some more information on Bible background information, this is partnered with the Bible Project. So all the Bible Project videos are built into this app. So this is the Filament Bible. Another suggestion for you. If you want to stick a little closer to us, Word of Flame, it's King James Version, puts out an apostolic study Bible. This is not so much about the major themes in the Bible, but key apostolic doctrines. So if you want a Bible that you can do some Bible studies with and has got a lot of good notes and footnotes and outlines some of our major doctrines, the Apostolic Study Bible, and then last but not least, if you want to go through the books of the Bible and get a general overview from an apostolic perspective, within the last couple years, we, the United Pentecostal Church, have put out the Apostolic Handbook series. Right here, I've got up just the handbook on Acts as an example. It's an eight-volume set. So there's four on the Old Testament, four on the New Testament, and here's another resource that you can look at to give you some information. I've probably talked too long, but if you're interested in questions, and if we have any, I can either take questions or you have cards. Okay, let's look through these questions. Not that any of them are bad. I'm trying to think what I can answer in five minutes. Okay. If you submitted one of these questions, I've only got three. Two of them are complex. I would be happy to answer them, but I can't do it in five minutes. So come see me if you submitted the Son of God question or if you submitted the fasting question. But I'll do this one. Is honor shame in play with women should be silent in the church? Ask your husbands at home. Excellent question. And the short answer is yes. In the ancient world, 
women, for the most part, were not educated. Okay? It was the men. So, Paul has got this weird radical idea that women are allowed to come to church and ask questions and learn. Don't miss that. We get hung up on the idea that he's telling them to be quiet and ask questions at home. You're missing the main point. He's saying, ask questions. So this already puts Paul at radical odds with the Roman society around him because he's just given women permission to learn. So don't miss that. That's the first thing. Secondly, he's dealing with a local church context and he's responding as a pastor. And now he's got a situation where they're trying to teach and preach and the women probably for the first time are allowed to learn and ask questions and things like that. So they're disrupting the service and what's going on. And so Paul is dealing in this passage, go back and read it, along with other things. It's not just about women. He's also dealing with people who are doing tongues and interpretation out of order. He's dealing with people who are prophesying incorrectly. He's dealing with lots of different church worship issues, if you will. And so his response in all those is let the person be silent. In other words, don't disrupt the service. And so in this passage, when he says women should be silent, let them ask their husbands at home, he's not saying women... When you get to the door, shut up, never speak. That's ridiculous. That's not what he's getting at. What he's saying as he's dealing with this specific context is, ladies, rather than disrupt the church service, wait till you get home and ask your husband so he can explain it to you. Don't miss this point. What's the implication there? Husbands, you best be explaining what's going on to your wife. Be careful not to read our culture backwards into it. He's encouraging growth. He's encouraging education. He's saying the ladies can learn. And he's giving the husbands a responsibility to start teaching them. So it wasn't about just stomping on women and keeping them silent. Now to the honor-shame thing. If you're in an honor-shame culture, where is the first place that a wife would probably be expected to learn? From her husband. And we've just short-circuited that process. By being in public... Remember, public-private settings, right? And we're in public, and now we've just interrupted the teaching or the sermon, and we're asking the preacher slash pastor to answer the questions. And, and yes, that would have been a big embarrassment to the husband. So it's not the only thing, but good question whoever submitted that. We do have a little bit of an honor-shame situation going on in there. When you're dealing with honor-shame issues in the text, pay attention to the setting. If it's a public setting, most likely you're dealing with an honor-shame scenario. I greatly appreciate all of you allowing me the opportunity the last four weeks to walk through some of these different things and talk about Bible interpretation. I hope that this has exposed you to some resources and some new ideas. If you would stand with me, I want to close out in a short word of prayer. And then, again, whoever submitted the fasting question and whoever submitted the question on Son of God, come see me. I'd be happy to explain it. I just don't have time to do it as we're wrapping up. And one final note for our children. If you completed your notes, come see Brother Vincent. And for all the kids who completed their notes, since we're talking about culture, we thought a little globe would be fun. So we've got these little squishy balls with a globe on them for all the kids if they took notes tonight. So come get that after church. Thank you, Lord, for your inspired word. Thank you, Jesus, for this incredible gift that we have that's been preserved for us. And we recognize we are thousands of miles removed from the biblical lands, and we are thousands of years removed from the setting. And so we have to make a strong effort to overcome some of these obstacles to properly understand your word.
I pray that everyone would leave here encouraged today and that when we read your word, you open the eyes of our understanding. You encourage our spirits. You enlighten us. And as we come to you and we seek knowledge and wisdom about what your word has to say, I pray that you make the scriptures clear to us and easy to understand so we can draw closer to you and closer together. In Jesus' name, amen.